Welcome to the 252nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. I'd like to welcome you to a special episode in recognition of one year of the Faces of COVID project with my guest, Alex J. Goldstein. And let me just introduce Alex. Alex Goldstein created Faces of COVID in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic as a means of lifting up the stories behind the statistics of those lost to COVID and affirming their dignity. Also holding our government leaders accountable for the failures to adequately respond to the pandemic. Alex is currently CEO of the strategic communications firm 90 West, which he founded in 2016 to better serve companies, organizations, and leaders that are making a positive impact on the world with a focus on equity economic mobility, and the climate crisis. Prior to founding 90 West, Alex served for eight years in numerous key leadership roles with former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, including as senior advisor and executive director of Governor Patrick's political committee, press secretary and spokesman for the Patrick Murray administration, and as press secretary on Governor Patrick's successful 2010 reelection campaign, and recently, he also served as a senior communications advisor and spokesman for Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's historic and successful campaign for the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. And Alex was my guest on November 12, 2020 in COVID calls. And on that day, uh, there were 242,310 deaths to date in the United States from COVID-19. As you join me today, Alex, we're counting 552,073. Welcome back to COVID Calls. It's good to see you and congratulations on a year of faces of COVID. <clears throat> Thanks, Scott. Really uh, happy to be with you and also just kind of blown away by your commitment to the storytelling throughout this. I can't believe, I mean, you've been doing this so consistently every single day, day after day. I feel like we have a lot of kinship on that because we both know what it means to kind of be interfacing with this every single day of this pandemic. So I was really excited to join you this evening. Thanks for that. And, and I think there is that sense and we'll talk about that of, of what it's meant and i was just talking with a couple of historians about an oral history project they've been doing there's been a lot of people who've been at this now for a year um and it'll be interesting to see a reckoning of what that's meant for people who've been really thinking about these issues every every single day i want to usually i would read an obituary but i've asked asked alex if he would do that today given that obituaries are at the core of the faces of COVID practice so i'm going to remove myself from um, the screen here for a minute. And Alex, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Uh, yeah, Scott, you invited me to uh, read an obituary. And my immediate instinct, I, I had found a obituary I'd wanted to read that was from a year ago today. Um, and there was someone who had passed away on April 1st, 2020 of COVID. Um, but then I was putting together uh, the stories that I'd post for the rest of the night tonight and into tomorrow morning. And I found a story of somebody who passed away yesterday. And it reminded me um, that we are still so very in this right now and we have not emerged uh, out of it. And so I wanted to read this story of someone uh, who we just lost um, from our midst. So this obituary is for Ashley Nicole McHugh, 36 years old, a 23-year resident of Pasadena, Maryland, formerly of Glen Burnie, Maryland, died of COVID on March 
2021 at Baltimore Washington Medical Center. Miss McHugh was born on February 19th, 1985 to Gary and Joanne. She most recently worked as an administrative assistant for a local construction company. The world lost a beautiful soul. To those who knew her, she was a ray of sunshine. She truly loved her family, friends, and her dog, Lincoln. Even in despair, her pleasant attitude and strength touched all of those around her, including the medical staff who were treating her. She was and will always be our hero. You could almost always find Ashley doing something outdoors, whether it was saving an animal or insect in distress, exploring and wanting to touch each creature encountered, hunting for fossils and shark's teeth at Calvert Cliffs, or collecting seashells and watching the sunrises and sunsets on the beach. She also enjoyed playing bingo and spending time with her family and friends. In addition to her parents, Ashley is survived by her boyfriend of over 13 years, David. Thanks for, for reading that story. Could you um, maybe say a little bit about, in reference to that obituary or, or the many others that you've uh, featured in Faces of COVID, what's the process that you go through, Alex, to choose these stories to share? Yeah, they, uh, you know, it sort of evolved um, over the course of the year. When, when I first began Faces of COVID back on March 31st of 2020, which was the first day um, that I began posting, the stories were almost uh, all being sourced from primary news outlets. So if a reporter had actually reported out uh, the passing of somebody in their community, most of these stories were at the local level from local TV affiliates. Um, or local newspapers. I was identifying those just through research, uh, looking at different communities and the coverage um, of those issues. And uh, so that's where the vast majority of them were coming from. Then um, as the pandemic continued, a lot of the stories also began to surface like this one, which were um, you know, first person narratives from families in actual obituaries that they had submitted to a newspaper. And what I think is important to note is that I really kind of went out of my way not to make any assumptions and only include obituaries from families that had specifically pointed to COVID-19 um, as the reason, even if maybe they, you know, uh, some other stories, it seemed pretty likely, or they would say pneumonia or things like that. Um, you know, wanting to really allow families to self-identify as having lost somebody to COVID before they would show up um, within uh, the, the feed. And then most recently, and now probably the majority of the stories are coming from people who submit them directly to Faces of COVID. Um, the, there's been over 800 individual stories submitted in the last few months. I created a submission form uh, back in September or October, and that has been a really regular place where each morning I'll wake up and I'll see seven or eight new stories that uh, sort of come in from the previous day, and I try to get those up as quickly as possible, and people can really speak in their own words directly to the Faces of COVID audience, which is now around 150,000 people. So just in recognition of that one-year mark, which you passed yesterday, I mean, we've all been in this, the whole world's been in this, but you have a special practice in this. You've immersed yourself in these stories of life and, and death from COVID. I wonder if you could just reflect um, on what that year has been like, what the toll may have been like on, on you, positive, negative. Yeah, I, uh, 
I think it's a very, um, I, I feel two extremes on what this experience has been like. I think on one hand, it is uh, this constant interface with death and loss and uh, oftentimes emailing and communicating with people who are in the uh, you know, worst day of their lives as they're sharing a story about uh, the, a family member. Um, and I really have been committed to reading everything that comes through and any story that we post. So, um, you know, become a lot of interfacing with the really specific details of how people were lost, uh, oftentimes alone or, you know, via people saying goodbye via Zoom or dropping somebody off at the hospital, thinking they would be able to see them again. And that ended up being the last time. And that sort of compounds over time. And it is, uh, it's heavy. I, you know, especially because I have a day job um, that I'm really passionate about. Most of this work happens late at night or early in the morning, which is both, I feel like a kind of sacred and quiet and peaceful time to be doing it. Um, but it is also, uh, you know, a difficult, especially before you go to sleep at night, um, it can sort of stick with you and linger with you. Um, on the other hand, I have also found this to be a really special gift of, kind of uh, getting to know this country in a really intimate way, in a way I never would have thought imaginable, even in loss, because this project has unexpectedly kind of brought me into every corner of this country, big cities and small towns and communities I had never heard of and might never visit. Um, and not just hearing a name or an age or a date of someone's passing, but really hearing about who they were and the lives they lived and how extraordinary those lives are. And I think it's reminded me just how much there is to this country, even in loss, the uh, textured stories that people live, the extraordinary lives that they live. I think that has been a gift. And I would also say um, being able, you know, I'm one of these people who if I had to sit still and just kind of wait for the pandemic to blow over, I think I really would have lost it by now. Um, I needed purpose in this. And I also uh, you know, wanted to be able to do something that actually brought meaning to people. And I think um, one of the things that has been sort of unexpected is how meaningful the Faces of COVID platform has been specifically for families of someone who, uh, families who have lost someone, because it didn't naturally occur to me at the beginning of the pandemic, that if you lost somebody, you weren't getting your traditional grieving rituals, you were not getting a funeral or a wake or the ability to be in community regularly. And so suddenly something that seems um, almost, you know, insignificant, which would be a tweet, becomes so much more than that, because you're actually saying this person's name out into the world where 150,000 people can see it, uh, at least, you know, not including where it's shared and people are engaging and reacting and expressing loss. And for that brief little flash of a moment, I think people are getting a little feeling of that community from a bunch of strangers that, um, perhaps they were missing in their own grieving process, which has made this a place that has actually become, you know, probably the thing that I care about the most now is making sure that it's a meaningful space for them. Even though when I started it, that wasn't the initial goal because I never thought it would amount to enough to be meaningful to them, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. It's really interesting that you describe it that way. It must be also that family members have, have reached out to you to share that. And, and just to underline what you said, a lot of people might think, 
a tweet, and it can be just a sort of passing, you know, an idea that goes out there in the ether and people pick it up or they don't. Um, but the regularity with which you're posting on faces of COVID, the, it, it becomes a genre in of itself. And then as they get, and people who haven't checked this out, even if you're not a Twitter user, you can easily just go to Twitter and look for faces of COVID and you'll find it and you'll see what happens. They get shared, they get commented on, and it becomes a sort of, I guess I hadn't thought about it this way till you described it, it but it becomes this virtual space of consolation. Were you surprised that it picked up and sort of took on its own life in that way by the, the spring? Because by last spring, when you first popped on my radar, it already had a lot of followers. And then, I mean, throughout the summer and fall, I mean, it really became a, a centerpiece where people looked for understanding what this loss has meant. Yeah, well, it, it definitely, uh, the the change occurred when I, when I came to realize it also coincided with, and maybe these were, uh, it's a bit of a chicken or egg thing, but the when people, when I was sharing, you know, written out journalistic profiles, people replying might express, you know, a, a feeling of loss or, you know, say, oh, that's terrible or rest in peace or something like that. But they're doing it back to a written out, you know, journalistic story. Whereas once families began to submit, they knew they were that a, when a, when someone's replying to one of these, you are replying to the family, and the family is reading it. They and I know for a fact you can watch after I post one of these, and I sent I always send a note to the families who have posted something or who have submitted something to let them know that their post is up, and you can watch as family members come into the feed and start replying to people and start liking the tweets. So it became something where because so many of them were originating from family members. I think more people were drawn to submit and more people were drawn to reply and express this. And one of the things that I think has really surprised me among lots of things that have surprised me is that uh, the toxicity that really has come to define the space of social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere on for this specific endeavor, I kind of spent my whole time holding my breath, waiting for the trolls to arrive and thus far, you know, a year in, they haven't yet. And I think if they were going to, they probably would have by now. And so I find that pretty unexpected, uh, which is made for a space that doesn't have a lot of noise. Um, you know, the it's simple posts with, you know, people's words, and then it's people's compassionate and kind and graceful reactions. And that's really it. And, you know, every now and then somebody comes in and wants to be a jerk and, it's very easy to just block those people right away, but that's probably only amounted to, you know, 10 accounts over the course of a year, which once this got rolling, my immediate fear was, all right, now that it's been noticed, here comes the cavalry. Uh, and, you know, gratefully that they've found other targets uh, other than me. So that's it. You know, you're, you're pretty upfront about your politics and I think you, you've been on Chris Hayes or some, one of the programs on MSNBC to, to talk about it. But so fascinating that you describe the trolls didn't arrive. Why do you, what do you what do you owe that to? There's something about the way that you've you've stayed pretty consistent about the form that these take. I mean, you're not an apolitical guy, but faces of COVID is not about litigating the failures of the Trump administration. Right. I, I mean, I am fiercely political in my personal life, and you can find that at my own personal handle. Um, but that was a big reason why, I mean, initially, uh, just for the first couple of days of this back in March, 
I was doing this on my personal handle uh, mm-hmm. on Twitter, and I made the decision to have a separately branded uh, handle because of this exact issue, which is I come with a lot of baggage, um, but I tried to create uh, Faces of COVID as a space where anybody could come, and I wasn't going to shove politics into your face. Um, that doesn't mean I never made political uh, points when I felt like I needed to. If you go through the feed, there were moments, but I think a lot of this stuff speaks for itself, right? Um, you know, the when the, there's more people dying in the United States than almost anywhere else in the world, and there's more cases in the United States than almost anywhere else in the world, uh, I don't need to make a political point. People can make that point for me. Um, I think what I wanted to make sure of was that anybody felt comfortable submitting their loved one's story, whether I don't care who you voted for, I don't care what your life experience has been. Um, what I care about is that you have a space to uh, acknowledge them because it really is a part of history. Um, this is, I, I sort of see faces of COVID as trying to take an active role in the history of the pandemic and telling it in real time through these stories. And I can't, I don't think any of us can afford to tell this story by leaving out people that, you know, don't fit our political calculus or something else like this. I, this is about who, the people who died. There are plenty of other places to go to get your political fix on these issues. And I do plenty of that, but I, you know, I know for certain that people who are were major Trump supporters and uh, you know things like that submitted stories to us and didn't have um, you know felt safe doing so. I also think that to the other end, because people have stayed away from like the toxic stuff has stayed away from this feed. I think more people in general of all political stripes, progressive, right wing, whatever, have felt more comfortable sharing their stories here because they know that they're not going to get dragged through the mud no matter what. And that there's going to be a certain level of dignity afforded to everybody um, whose story shared. And the last thing we need is a democratic list of COVID deaths and a Republican list of COVID de- deaths. And I mean, just to stay with this for a second, um, it's really important, I think, to reflect on this, that you're a Democrat, you've been involved in politics, but you created a forum that says to people, that's, that's who I am, but let's, let's move to this other space where we actually can still find something in, in common. I also find it deeply depressing that it may be in obituary and talking about death could be one of the last spaces that Americans find where they can actually come together. You know, yeah. I don't know what, <laughs> no, I don't know what to say about that, but. Well, but I, I think you're getting at something really important, which has been a motivating factor because Faces of COVID is about honoring the dead, but it's also about persuading people to make better decisions, right? It's about, um, you know, better public policy, better individual decision-making around COVID. And I, uh, you know, I think about this in terms of, um, you know, if you pull the thread all the way where you will arrive, I hope at the end of the day, if you spend time on this feed, is that we have a responsibility to try to look after each other, which is not, I'm not saying you have a responsibility to look after just these people or just these people. 
that we all have a responsibility to look after each other, that there is such a thing as the common good. There is such a thing as a social compact. There is such a thing about being part of a community and that it's not just rugged individualism and a big race in life where we all just try to claw ourselves over the finish line, come what made anybody else. Now, that is a paradigm that I've subscribed to. And that is not political to me. I think anybody can share in that. And I think most people do. I think there's a small subset that's a very loud subset that exploits people's kind of worse impulses around the individualism. But I think that, um, you know, but I would also say that my experience through this pandemic is that neither, you know, Democrats and Republicans, neither has a monopoly on being right during this pandemic. We, uh, you know, the, I would certainly argue in a political sense that there's a lot more culpability with the Trump administration than just about anywhere else in certain Republican governors. But I have seen plenty of mistakes elsewhere, and certainly there's no lack of evidence for that. And I've also seen among my sort of Democrat progressive colleagues, I've seen blind spots throughout. Um, you know, it's none of us are perfect or totally pure on this. Um, but we can all make a decision which road we want to go down. Are we, uh, do we believe in the common good and do we believe in um, the value of looking after each other and having responsibility for each other or not? Uh, and that, that's a choice that I do want people to make. And I hope that the feed helps them make that choice. Talking to Alex J. Goldstein, the creator of Faces of COVID and uh, honoring the one-year mark of Faces of COVID today on COVID Calls. Um, Alex, you were provoked to start this project because of your concern over memory of a disaster that at that time was, was unfolding. And I think through the summer and through the fall, I even got a little optimistic, which is rare, um, that maybe this memory concern wouldn't be as serious as I had thought, because I shared your concern early on. Um, and then I don't know, I don't know where it is now. I don't know how much Americans are willing to engage, um, with memorial practices at this time. I'm seeing a lot of reporting about pandemic is, is almost over the closure, even the president talking about, you know, we'll all be back together in the backyard barbecue in July. And I don't want to pour cold water on that. We should rejoice about getting past this terrible disaster, but at the same time, I wonder what you think right now, one year in, where do you, what's the temperature that you're able to take of the Americans public, American public's um, feeling about remembering this pandemic? I think if I was a therapist and my patient was the United States of America, I would be very concerned because I think we are failing to process or take the time to process 550,000 of our family and friends and neighbors and coworkers who were here a year ago and are not here now. And I think that that's because it's painful and it's scary and it's hard. And we've been doing this so long and we've been affected in so many ways. Even, I mean, the trauma, that's just the trauma of the loss then it's compounded by the trauma of isolation, the trauma of long haul COVID survivors, the trauma of people who've lost their livelihood. And when you stack all of that up, I understand why people would rather compartmentalize it, push it down and get past it. And like, let's get to a new day. And my reaction isn't, we can't go to the new day, but my reaction is we have to do both because I think there's, first of all, I think it is the, healthiest way 
for us to uh, you know interface with this. I also think um, it is the right way to process this because if we don't, I think we run major risks on a public policy front uh, and in other ways of making so many of the same mistakes again when the next crisis comes, whether it's another pandemic, whether it's the climate crisis that's like literally unfolding around us, but we've, you know, been so distracted by COVID, um, you know, and that keeps me up at night because the, you know, history repeating itself cannot be anything that uh, anyone is comfortable with. And yet this rush and the narrative that's taking hold around how desperately we need to turn the page, I think I get it. 100%, I get it. I'm there too. Like, I miss my friends and family too. I miss traveling. I miss all those things and I want them back too. But if we're going to turn the page, we can't like rip out all the pages before it and pretend they never happened. Like, we have to reckon with this. And, um, you know, you, you think of, you know, after 9 11, the amount of uh, energy that was put into processing those who we lost, the memorials that happened every single year, the live funerals, all of those things. And a lot of those things we couldn't do because of the pandemic, both because of the need to isolate uh, because of safety issues, but also because of how do you even begin to convey 550,000 people at scale? Well, I guess you create a Twitter account because I haven't seen a lot of you know other people be able to figure out ways beyond that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we have precedent in this country for giving these moments their due, uh, but the nature of this and the certain, certainly the media narratives definitely concern me that we're going to have so much haste to move past this and blow past it that we could find ourselves back in a situation like this. And also the last thing I'll say, and I don't mean to drone on on this, but the, I also think about my primary constituency with faces of COVID, which is if you are a family who lost somebody and you are watching this happen, you feel like the country gave up on you or forgot about you. And we know that the multiplier effect on 550,000 people lost means millions of people mourning someone close to them. We can't do that to people. We just can't do it to them. And so I, uh, I think there's just like a moral reason beyond the public policy and the, you know, all that, that's just, it's just not a kind thing to do to people and that we should be present uh, and, and speak to their loss um, longer than just uh, a moment or two. I'm glad you mentioned that multiplier effect. I actually had a guest on Ashton Verdery, who's a social scientist and works with a team and they've been trying to actually sort of quantify that to a certain extent. Um, their estimation is it's sort of uh, for every one person who's died, there's a uh, multiplier times nine. So there you go, right there, you're yeah. looking at over 6 million people whose lives have, are, are really touched, like deeply yeah. impacted um, through grief, but also through financial loss, financial precarity, um, stigmatization, various other things that, and mental stress that come along with that. So that's a that's a really large measurable segment of American population um, that are going to be grappling with this for years to come. And I, so that's why I wanted to kind of turn to now one year. We're nowhere near done with this thing. What's faces of COVID going to be doing now? You're sticking with 
what you've been doing up to now? Are you adding on new things? Where where are you going with the project? Yeah, so you know, the I certainly see absolutely no reason to pull back. Um, you know, the I find sort of the one year thing is significant only in that it is a measurement of time, just like five hundred fifty thousand is a measurement of human life, but it is not in and of itself a milestone that tells me what I should be doing or not doing other than looking around at the reality that here we are a year later, my state here in Massachusetts is a mess right now. We uh, just had 2,400 new cases today. We are back to February, you know, second, third surge numbers here. Um, And so the utility of faces of COVID and the amount of loss that's still occurring makes it to me just as relevant as it was on an immediate basis, not just memorializing, but like people are still dying every day. Look at this story that I read today. I'm posting tonight. She died yesterday. She was 36 years old. Um, And so I think to that extent, I need to keep doing what I'm doing. I am also starting to think beyond about ways in which I can uplift more of these stories and potentially kind of do some gap bridging. That's my specialty is sort of media relations between bringing reporters uh, who are eager to tell these stories that have many of the stories that have gone untold. Faces of COVID has told 1% roughly, shared 1% uh, of these stories, probably a little bit less than 1% at about 5,000, maybe a little more than 5,000. And so we know that there's hundreds of thousands of more stories where people have not heard their names. And if those families want to share them, we want to help. And so uh, I'm interested in um, developing some channels to make that happen is what I'll say so far. And I'm hoping to have something a little more concrete uh, to announce in the next couple of weeks. So, I mean, just acknowledging the accomplishment of faces of COVID, but I'm really struck by that too, that 99% of people who died of COVID-19 to date have not had their story told uh, in this way. Obituaries, getting them published is not free. Right. Funerals are not free. Getting those legacy.com posts are not up there are not free. So there's still a lot of work here. The people who want to sort of join you, I think really, to me, they should seek you out and should seek out faces of COVID and try to find ways to connect. Yeah, I hope they will. And uh, it's such an important point that I've, that's one of my really big things I've learned during this experience is that we have a sort of industry that services obituaries and loss. um, But it, like any other industry, it's oftentimes a for-profit industry um, that costs money. And I'm not saying that there's anything inherently, you know, corrupt about that business model. It is just that it's a business model. But uh, some people, you know, $200, $300 to post an obituary is not worth it. Um, and that doesn't make their loss any less significant. Uh, but if I can create some pathways that are free um, for people to continue to do that, uh, then I definitely want to make that happen. We're almost up on time in this discussion with Alex Goldstein marking the one year of faces of COVID. And you did say, you know, one year it kind of feels arbitrary in the midst of, it's hard to know what numbers uh, to grab onto in the midst of all this. But I will ask you this question, um, if nothing else, just to market for our own discussions is, um, you gonna be doing this in a year, five years? How far out are you imagining you're gonna be engaged with this and more generally that people need to be engaged with this kind of a practice of remembering COVID deaths? Well, a, uh, 
a disaster historian uh, once told me uh, recently that I was a, uh, whether I liked it or not, I am now sort of a historian of this period because of uh, the amount of time I have interfaced with this loss and my knowledge of it. And that was you, Scott, um, in case that wasn't clear. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and yeah. so I, I, you know, I, I take that seriously. True, though. I've been thinking about that a lot since we spoke about it. And so I see that, you know, I think I've learned that this has been such a unique year of my life and so upended in so many bizarre ways. Um, but there is meaning in what I've been able to bear witness to and what I've been able to create. And I don't want to squander that. I think there are real, there's a real value in finding a way to keep that. And I, so I, I, I have this expectation now and I've in motivation that it will kind of always be with me and something that I will continue to speak out about. Cause I know that the history will, of this will continue to be written for years, if not decades uh, and studied for a long time. And we have a lot of the source material um, that I think is an important part of that story. And I want to make sure that it's, uh, it's treated properly. Well, we'll be watching you and I hope many people will, who maybe just been learning about faces of COVID for the first time. You've gotten some news coverage in the last week. Um, great piece in the Columbia journalism review about what Excellent. you've been yeah. doing really important. And so, um, that's one of the things I've learned recently talking with some folks about Fukushima. Um, and I can't remember if I shared this with you or not, because it's just past the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, the great um, East Japan earthquake. Kyoko Sato said this to me, that um, there should be a space for opening up memory even 10 years later. Mm. That some people are not going to start talking about this experience of what this has meant to them many years in the future. Um, I think that's important to sit with a little bit. It's, this is um, Yeah, it's really, really important. So I want to thank you, Alex. I want to remind folks you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5.30 p.m. This has been a special COVID calls to talk about faces of COVID at the one-year mark. Um, Alex, thank, for, thank you for all you're doing. I know it's meant a lot to a lot of people, and I hope people will check out faces of COVID. Scott, thanks so much for having me and for all you've done to kind of keep the spotlight here uh, as people uh, tend to get distracted. You're always bringing folks back to what matters, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for that. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you uh, next week on COVID Calls, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Mm -hmm.